When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show. And we do this every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. And you can also go to our podcast. We podcast our show. We've got another podcast called Let Me Tell You. You can find us on Instagram, on Facebook. Hey, guys, we're everywhere, and we love to invite you to come along. We've got a show. Well, I say this every Sunday, but the truth is we have a really great show. Doris Kearns Goodwin, the extraordinary historian, presidential scholar, Pulitzer Prize winner, she is the executive producer of something through the History Channel that's this weekend. It's going to be for President's Week, a three-part series on Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president. I could not believe what I was watching. And, you know, we all think we know everything about Lincoln, but if you think we have trouble, and we are on the edge of very delicate situations with Russia, with China... You name it. We're, we're in a difficult time. We're still reeling from the effects of the pandemic. But when you see Lincoln, you've got to take a look at this. The Civil War, it was a time of extraordinary brutality and bloodshed and anger. And yet all of this, Lincoln saved the Union, emancipation, There was no end to the amazing things for the most unlikely person to become president. What he did, and in the end, you come away with a feeling of hope that this can happen, this can be, that we're in a perilous time, democracy is definitely threatened, and don't underestimate the power of the vote. It's extraordinary. But look at this, look at Lincoln, and understand that there is light at the end of this tunnel. And also, I went to see The Music Man. How many times? Let me count the ways, but I love this show. I love the music. I love the optimism. I love the magic. And it was fun. The audience loved it. Packed house. And I think you're going to enjoy it too. And Jefferson May, who's a terrific actor, is one of the main players. If you remember the music man, he plays the mayor. And he's going to come on a visit. So we've got a lot going on, especially on a day or weekend like today. And I know you're absolutely going to love it. And speaking of Broadway, because I just got a notice that Macbeth with Daniel Craig and Ruth Nega is coming to Broadway 
previews are beginning March 29th. It doesn't open until April 28th. But you know, with that cast and with this actor, oh my gosh, this is going to be a huge sellout. So do try to take advantage of it and get tickets soon. I know it's something you're really going to like. And then another thing that can make you very cheerful is the Botanical Gardens with their orchid show. And if you've had enough, like most of us, we had enough of winter, we had enough of virus, but the Botanic Garden on Bronx River Parkway, you need tickets in advance, nybg.org. Some of the exhibits are indoors, and anyone five and older have to show valid proof of full COVID vaccine all the shots to get into the indoor spaces. The outdoor spaces are easy. And ticket prices, including the garden and the orchids, are 30 for adults, 28 for seniors and students. And you can get tickets to the Halpix Conservatory, a tram tour. There's a children's adventure garden and all kinds of things. It is quite gorgeous. It's its 19th year, and I know that you're going to love it. And I do a lot of shopping there, too. Thousands of top-quality orchids, from the most exotic to the most everyday, and they show you how to make them grow, how to make them when they're finished, come back again. This is a special day. And if you luck out and get a day that isn't freezing, which happens then definitely take advantage of this. And they have special orchid evenings too with music and cash bars and food that you can buy. And that's like March 26, April 2nd, 9, 16th. But you know what? Go online. It's a whole lot easier to do that and see it. And meanwhile, I'm going to tell you, take a breath and relax because we have a great show straight ahead. Enjoy it. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats. And you know, I love to eat and I love to explore food options, go on adventures. So when I was in Brooklyn a week or two ago and visited the Yellow Door, and that is an interesting neighborhood. There are a lot of Syrian families in this part of Brooklyn. And I had remembered that many years ago, my friend, the late, incredible Sally Bijou, had taken me to this little place where she said they have delicious, high-quality Middle Eastern, and because she kept a kosher home, the food is glad kosher. Loved this place. We bought all kinds of goodies that were hors d'oeuvres. Plus, they now offer shipping on their foods, and they do kosher catering as well. Their takeout menu ranges from vegetarian to dairy, and it's called Suda, S-E-U-D-A Foods. It's at 705 Kings Highway in Brooklyn. The website, Suda.com. And the phone is 718-375-1500. 
They have delicious salads, main courses, prepackaged meals that you can take with you, and they tell you how to heat it. So here's just because I didn't know what to order. So I'm giving you what the community told me and promise you, delicious. Kibbe, K-I-B-B-E-H. It's a family of dishes based on spice ground meat, onions, grains, very popular in the Middle East. And it can be made vegan too. They offer a lot of varieties with beef. They have mushroom potato, great for takeout and very reasonable. Cigars. Oh my gosh, these, my husband used to love these. They're one of the most notable dishes of Morocco. And Moroccan cigars are made savory or sweet. And at Suda, you can get vegetable, beef, and potato. And of course, we took out. And then I was with someone who doesn't eat meat, but she loves fish. And she like inhaled that batter dip fish. So delicious, she said. It was $9.75 for a half a pound. All kinds of hors d'oeuvres. When you go to seudasuda.com, you'll find out how to ship it. They usually do FedEx priority overnight, so you get it the next day. But you know what? Have a little adventure. Do what we did. Go to the Yellow Door. It's so much fun. And then take yourself. They'll tell you how to get there to this little shop. At clo- we went on a Sunday, and it closes at 3 o'clock. So we literally, we had to call them to say, we're here, we got lost, stay open. So we went in, and when you first go in, you're going to think, what is the little tiny place? Really good. Everything we bought was delicious. Of course, we ate a lot of it in the car going home. We couldn't resist. But this is on my list, and I think you're going to enjoy it. And it's nice to be in another part of our great area and maybe do things that you haven't done before. You could even throw in the Brooklyn Museum. Lots of good things. So enjoy. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back with lots more. You're listening to The Joan Hamburg Show every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Certain words creeping into his conversation. Words like swell. Soldier old man. It's all my friends. You got trouble. Right into the sea. With a capital T that rhymes with P that stands for fool. We've surely got trouble. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And lucky me, because I went to see The Music Man. I've seen The Music Man at least two times, maybe three. Love that show. And you know what? I love that show. This was my third or fourth time. Every time you see it, it's different. The music, in fact, our producer and I were just saying how great when... You go to the theater and you come out and you're singing and you're humming till there was you or whatever. One of the wonderful shows. And Jefferson Mays, a truly superb actor. I am my own wife. I will never forget some of the things I have seen Jefferson Mays in. Just incredible. 
Some, some things you see in many plays, eight or nine parts, and doesn't miss a beat. A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, another thing that I loved, and a lot of TV. But in The Music Man, Jefferson Mays plays the mayor, who's one of the great characters. And I'm going to let him explain. And The Music Man, like so much of Broadway, went through Broadway hell. They were up, they were down, everyone got COVID, people got better, then they got it again. The understudies were working like they've never worked in the history of theater. And in the end, all is well, because the music man is up and running and exciting, and the audience was packed and happy as can be. And Jefferson plays, his wife is Jane Howdyshell. And I know Jane a long time, too. She and my daughter-in-law were in a couple of uh, plays together over the years. But Jefferson, what a journey you've had with oh, the music man. What a journey indeed, Joan. It's been in the works for over two years. I know. So we didn't believe it would finally uh, arrive on Broadway as it has. And then it took us probably about two, two weeks for our entire company to be together. Um, the swings and, and understudies and covers rose to the occasion, and um, the show was able to go on um, since so many of us. One night, we had 15 uh, people out with COVID. So, I don't um, know how you guys did <laughs> it. was a bit surreal being out on stage. My 4th of July speech, speech felt like a rather subdued AA meeting in a church basement rather than a patriotic event in, in uh, the town gymnasium. But uh, but here we are. We're back at full strength. And as you say, the audiences are, are flocking in. And it's been a joyous celebration, not only of this great American musical, but of the return of, of theater to Broadway and the uh, resilience of our fair city. No, and the gift of being able to work again. I mean... Yeah. That that's what is so amazing, and you know it was funny uh, at the intermission. I said to the usher, one of the ushers, "I can't believe this crowd. What what happened to COVID?" You know, and she said, "COVID? What COVID? They're so happy to be in the theater." Yes, on that- we were on our for our first pre- uh, preview. Um, we were all in the wings as the um, the first number was underway. And we just all burst into tears. Uh, We were completely surprised by the emotional nature of of this moment of coming together again with a living, breathing, laughing, gasping audience that we'd missed like a long lost friend or relative for this, these two years in exile. So we were all just wiping tears from our eyes, mascara running down people's cheeks, (laughs) trying to get ourselves together uh, to do the rest of the show. But it was so profoundly moving to be back at last. No, so exciting. And and it's like everyone, it wasn't just the cast and the staff and what makes a Broadway show go. The audience, too, been through over two years of this, and now they could just sit back and let the magic world take over. And that's a great gift. I'm talking to Jefferson Mays, a wonderful actor. I'm sure he has a room somewhere filled with Tonys and Lucille Lortel's and Drama Desk and Out of Critics <laughs> and all the awards for his work. When you were a kid growing up in Connecticut, you didn't come from a theater family. 
No, I didn't uh, exactly. My mother had acted in college and um, had been in summer stock and got her equity card. But this was the 1950s, and she either could do that or marry my dad. Um, and he was a naval officer and, a, and an illustrator, and uh, she was a children's librarian. So they loved the theater, and I was exposed to the theater as an audience member, but I didn't really do theater until, um, until I got to college. But uh, we did listen to you, however, with Rambling with Gambling. Uh, oh, my gosh. You now have, it's so funny. I, I spoke to John Gambling, the son, the, the, the granddaddy, who was the a grand, famous yeah. British musician, was the first gambling on the radio. And then I called him my John, was the second one. And then his yeah. son, John R., was the third one. And families right. like yours were part of our extended family. Indeed we were, yeah. So, But it's been it, lovely to, to follow you and uh, throughout your career and to... And to get to talk to you. No, knock on wood, we've all been lucky. And when you decided that acting was where it's at, it really started working. Yes. Yeah, I, I fell in love with it as a purely extracurricular thing while I was in college. And then it quickly eclipsed my academic studies to the point where I think I barely scraped by because I was just doing plays constantly. But it was the best sort of uh, training one could receive, just an, uh, out from under faculty supervision, just a bunch of passionate, enthusiastic kids blundering on together and teaching each other. Well, and now here you are in one of America's favorite plays, playing the mayor, along with your wife, of River City, Iowa. Yes. And you guys succumb to the charms of Professor Harold Hill who is out to get everyone in the town to give him a couple of bucks to create a boy's band. If you just think the notes, it will happen. You know, ironically, <laughs> people believe that. Yes, yes, the power of positive, positive thinking. Um, yes, Jane, the divine Jane Howdy Show, to whom I am so delighted to be married eight performances <laughs> a week. She's, she's just the most wonderful onstage spouse you could ever right. hope to have. Perfect, right? Fun. And then she goes yeah. home at night. It, who could have a better marriage? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the, success, the secret to our success, yes. <laughs> um, but, uh, yes, we play the, the, the rather uh, intractable uh, and resistant mayor and Mariessa uh, of River City, Iowa. But we, too, yes, succumb to the charms of, of Harold Hill. And the entire town uh, undergoes this this extraordinary, miraculous transformation of being resistant to art and to change and to indeed love. Uh, and then we are we are uh, transformed. Right. And and the mayor, Mayor Shin, is a really interesting part because he's got so many dimensions. On one hand, he can't say anything straight. It all no. comes out. But on the other hand, you've got to make him, which he is, a parent really caring about his kids and his daughters and worried about everything. Yes, so, he's very much a loving father and a loving husband in his, you know, totalitarian, patriarchal fashion, but he, and wants the best for his town. And then when he uh, encounters this charismatic force, in the guise of Harold Hill, um, he feels terribly threatened and uh, and fights a, a, a rather 
a rear guard action through most of the play before he too is brought around. But I enjoy him immensely. Number one, it's great to be wearing one costume and, yeah, and playing like one <laughs> character for a change. Uh, it's a less schizophrenic experience. But I'm, um, as you say, trying to bring out as many uh, dimensions uh, of, of the man as possible. And, you know, I, I know that everyone on Broadway, m- many of them are still not back. And you guys were lucky, a good producers who stood by you and you came back. But during COVID, I mean, it wasn't just a few months, which we all thought it was going to be. It was over two years. Yeah. How do you really do that? Two years without working, without money. How, do, how did you guys all survive? Did you meet to rehearse in the middle or did you just hide away like the rest of us? Well, there was a fair amount of that, of course. It's been certainly tough on everyone, but uh, there were little little pop-up rehearsals here and there. I know that Hugh Jackman um, and Sutton Foster, our remarkable leads, would meet together and you know tap dance furiously with Warren right. Carlyle, the choreographer, um, you know, for a week or two here and there, uh, little workshops with the corps de ballet here and there. Uh, but the rest of us just sort of sat at home and memorized our lines and, and prayed for this plague to lift, right. uh, which it finally has. But um, we were sort of sustained by our faith that it would indeed come to pass. Yeah, and you weren't here, right? Were, weren't you, I forget where I read, you were in I was, L.A.? I was in, I was in exile in Los Angeles. Um, my wife and I were going to come back on March 13th, the day of the lockdown in 2020. So we turned around literally on our way to the airport huh. and sat tight in Los Angeles. Uh, and then I did some recorded books and a couple of film and TV projects here and there. Um, of course, L.A., the motion picture and television industry was not forced to close utterly like our theatrical industry. Right. So I was able to uh, mercifully work a bit. And, you know, I forgot to ask you, when everyone was dropping like flies around you, including your leading lady, Sutton Foster, did you ever get COVID or did you steer clear? I didn't get it, miraculously enough. Although I have my suspicions, my theory is that I was wearing a prosthetic nose at the time uh, oh. that I had designed by a wonderful L.A. Uh, makeup artist, and I was hoping to wear it. I wore it for 20 previews, and then Jerry Zachs, our director, uh, came up and said, do you want to try it without the nose tonight? See how that works. And then he sent me a rather cryptic text later saying, I didn't miss the nose. I hope you didn't either. Thanks. <laughs> so it was fired. But I think the nose offered me an extra layer of protection. And the adhesive I was using was so... Uh, evil smelling, I think I might have stumbled upon not a cure for COVID, but at least, yeah, some sort of uh, guard against it. No, that's true. And and it's because it's airborne, you breathe it in through your nose and having that fake nose probably took really good care of you. I'm not kidding. I think it it did something. I think everyone should have been wearing prosthetic noses and we wouldn't have been touched. (laughs) Well, we'll see what happens, but let's hope that it is over. And that yes. it has to just feel good, right? When you were in L.A., did you have a place there or you had to suddenly rent something? Yes, we, we rented a, a little apartment in L.A. to hunker down in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was certainly beautiful uh, to be there, but we missed our New York so much. I know. But thank goodness you're back. And you have such a good cast. 
everyone from the yes. kids are absolutely yes. full of joy and yes. adorable. And I think that's what we all love so much. It was contagious that I, everyone I so on too. that stage. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. We have 21 kids making their Broadway debuts. So that's half adorable. the cast. And it is just as you say, Joan, this whole experience is infused with such joy. And I credit that um, to the kids who um, are just so thrilled to be on stage. Of course, the adults are just thrilled to be back. Of course. But, but they, I've always subscribed to that W.C. Fields adage of like, never get on stage with kids and dogs. And <laughs> I don't think that anymore. They have sustained this company with their sheer exuberance and delight and, and their extraordinary skill and discipline. So I, I just have so much respect for my young colleagues. And they, they fill me with, with such pride and such hope for the future of our art and our industry. You know what? You're right. Some of them are so little and they dance like pros. It, yeah. it's, and they sing and they dance and they run all over the stage and you're taken with them. Uh, on this incredible journey. Yes. You know, and how often, Jefferson, can we sing songs when you leave the theater? All the musicals yes. in the past couple of years, you know, you can't do it because no. they're not meant to be sung out loud. Right. These are, but these are songs, as you say, that are popular songs that you, you march down the street singing at the end of the show. And they seem to be, this, this score seems to be in our blood. Um, as Americans and American theater goers. So it's, it's kind of a, a glorious uh, sing-along. And have you ever worked with all the amazing things you've done on Broadway and off? Have you ever worked with Jackman before? Or Never. Sutton Foster? My wife, uh, Susan, who's Australian. And an actress. Uh, worked with him, and an actress, worked with him uh, in Australia, they were like cops together in a police procedural, and she's good friends with Deborah Lee Furness, his his wife. But I've never uh, worked with Hugh before, and there's no one like him. He is one of the most lovely human beings and talented actors I've ever worked with, and he's been such a beautiful leader of this company. He and Sutton both have plied us with bagels and lottery mm. tickets and donuts and cupcakes and, oh, and they nice. just take such good care and uh, make a special effort to come around and talk to everyone. So it's, it's, it's sort of a hackneyed uh, phrase, but it is, it does feel like a family. Well, it looks like a family too. And thank you so much. I love the mayor. He made me laugh oh, and smile. And Thank all so continued much, success. Good luck. We'll talk again soon. That would be such fun. Thank you, Thank Joan. Thank you, my dear. Take care of yourself. All the bye best. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC Radio, and there's much more to come. Plymouth Rock and the Golden Rose! 
With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYC. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome everyone to the Joan Hamburg Show. And I had a little sneak preview of something really extraordinary. A three-part series. Well, it's actually a three-night event over this weekend, President's Day weekend. Abraham Lincoln. And this is the biography of our 16th president and the man who took our country during horrible times. You know, I know how many of you have complained, feel this is the worst time. Everything is bad. We don't have leadership. We're falling apart. We have threats of war. Watch this. Watch this biography. You're going to go and see again the bloodiest war in history. And yet you're going to see a man who did not come from privileged background, a simple man who took our country through that war, through its enormous crisis, not a perfect man, and yet became what some people consider the best president that we've ever had. A Pulitzer Prize winning writer, author, lecturer, scholar, historian, Doris Kearns Goodwin. She executive produced this. And it was predicated, actually, on what she wrote, her book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. And there's so much about Lincoln that we thought we knew that we don't know. Welcome to you, Doris. Oh, I'm glad to be with you again, Joan. Absolutely. No, it's wonderful to be able to talk about Abe and Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) And especially, I'm telling you, it was every time I think we're in the worst of times. Where are the leaders? Where's the hope? I looked at this biography and it was extraordinary. Those times were absolutely horrible, worse shape. If we can say that, then we are in now, or at least the perception is. And we got through it. I mean, that's the important thing to understand, you know, that we know the end of their story. We know that the war was won, that the Union was restored and emancipation secured. But the people living then, the people you're watching on this miniseries, they did not know how their story would end. They had the anxiety we're having today. So I think just having seen what it took to get through that and know that eventually we emerge stronger has got to give us some hope that we've got this chapter of our own still to write. And it depends on what we do, that how it's going to end. And it also depends upon a leader here we have a president an unlikely president but the president who understood and it wasn't only about ambition it was about being a human being and listening and empathy and funny at the same time and doing what he thought was right for the country not right for him politically so here you have this guy he saved the Union. He won the war. We saw emancipation. And 
we are hungry for something like that to happen again. Is it possible? We've got to believe that it is, right? I mean, otherwise, if you don't have the belief that it's possible, then there's no chance that anything can happen. And when you think about it, I mean, what the History Channel and Beth Lasky and I as executive producers tried to do in this miniseries was to show the journey that Abraham went from being a young kid at nine years old with his mother dying and struggling with his father and struggling to get an education, only one year of formal schooling, losing his first election to the state legislature, coming back with resilience. But because of the quality, one of the ones you just mentioned, empathy, ability to listen, to learn from his mistakes, all those emotionally intelligent qualities that we think are so important in our everyday lives, we have to have in our leaders. And he had them. And you follow him on this journey, and I think you root for him as a human being. You want him to win. And then when he's in that office with the terrible anxieties and the pressures, and he's able to use his humor to give him a life-preserving capacity to get through it, you just feel by his side, I hope, and, and know that you're going to be with him and root for the country and him at the same time. Right, and you knew that he was a human. He got depressed. He, he lived through all the emotions that we tend to forget what our leaders do. But he's an example of what a leader should do. And when you think about the stepmother, who really, not his father, his biological father, but his stepmother, who knew that there was something in this gangly, skinny young kid where he could <laughs> right. do something. Yeah, this is where, you know, we know from history's sake that she was so important to him because she comes into his life after his father has left him and his sister there, you know, for seven or eight months to go find another wife after Lincoln's mother had died. And she gives him love. She understands his talent. She gives him books. And I think some of the most emotional scenes that are in the filmed part of the miniseries are when she first comes into the house and she makes that house a snug and comfortable home. And then later when he has to say goodbye to her, when he's on his way to Washington to become president and knowing what she felt for him and what he felt for her, he was very lucky. This is a case of a very good stepmother rather than our normal traditional understandings right, of it. The wicked witch. No, it, it is rather incredible. But what, when all this is said and done and you are one of our leading presidential historians and writers, what does it take to really be a leader? Is it the same as when we went back to the 1860s and around there? Or are these times so different? Is there so much anger in our country? You know, I guess what we can take hope of is looking at the 1850s you know, as a forerunner in a certain sense for where we are today in the sense that the country was becoming more and more polarized. We had a partisan press. I mean, if you were getting your news in the 1850s or 60s, the only way you could get it was by the subscription to your party newspaper, which meant you're reading a Democratic newspaper or a Republican newspaper. And there was a same disagreement among facts that we have today among cable news and social media. If Lincoln was in a debate with Douglas and he had, was being written up in the Republican newspaper, they'd say he was so triumphant. He was carried out on the arms of his supporters. You read the same debate in the same time and you read it in the democratic newspaper and he was so terrible that he fell on the floor in embarrassment and had to be dragged out but that's the problem that was one of the things that was beginning to divide the country more and more you see symbolic things happen that one thing like january 6th when charles sumner and this is captured dramatically in the film in in the filmed version of the miniseries 
Um, he's he's struck on the head by the Charles by Charles Sumner, the anti-slavery senator, struck on the head by Preston Brooks, the South Carolinian congressman, to, with such damage that he goes into unconsciousness. But somehow, the fact that it happened in the Senate multiplied the feelings in the North against slavery and helped to create the Republican Party. And yet in the South, he was viewed as a hero. So you see those two different ways of looking at the same event that sadly we're seeing with January 6th as well. And that only deepens the polarization in the country. Right. And and the right to vote, which is a true threat to our democracy. And as you point out there, we think there have been a lot of threats to democracy, but maybe Abraham Lincoln's times and now. Could you equate now with then in terms of threat? You know, I think you're right in focusing on the right to vote. You know, sometimes when we talk about democracy, it seems like an abstract quality. But what democracy means is a system of government where the people can vote for their leaders. It's as simple as that. And Lincoln understood that when he first came into office, he talked about the question that was being raised by the secession of the South was whether a minority, which lost an election, could just decide to break up the union rather than accept their loss and go through a peaceful transition of power. And if they could do that, that would show that people couldn't govern themselves, that the whole idea of the democratic experiment was an absurdity. And you think about that's got a familiarity to today. And then the same thing, the last speech he gives is to talk about extending the rights possibly to African-Americans who had fought in the war. And now we're at a situation where that right to vote is being made harder rather than easier. And it just it's the symbol, it's the hallmark of what democracy is. So we really have to figure out how we're going to fight to make sure that that voting rights are protected. That's the, that's the challenge of our, of our time right now. It is. And can our elected leaders do this? Can they get Maybe through? Maybe this is where we need to have not just the elected leaders, but us as a people. You know, I think we need the kind of passion and the discipline that the civil rights movement brought to the 60s when voting rights was at issue after Selma, Alabama. You had that civil rights movement, and then you had the channel of power with LBJ inside that was able to translate that into legislative action. So you need both. But I think at the moment, it can't just depend upon the leaders. It's got to depend upon people in their states really organizing and 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 getting a momentum from the engaged citizen to make their legislators know that this isn't right to go backward you know, on voting rights, which is the hallmark of democracy, as I say. Exactly. And and when you look at this three-part series over President's Weekend, it is incredibly unlikely. The odds are against him. And how do you reunite a country during a war like they were dealing with? But it happened. The impossible happened. And that's what we have to believe. Of course, most of us have no clue how our elected leaders, even the good-intentioned ones, can rise to the occasion with so much animosity. But impossible things happen. <laughs> That's the old to dream, the impossible dream. <laughs> My husband ex- used to play that over and over again. That just gave him a sense of it can still happen when it things can. were tough. I mean, think about it. During you know the late 60s, things seemed really out of control, obviously during the Great Depression, during the early days of World War II, and, and they didn't know how it was going to end, as I say. So... That's why we just have to have the hope that somehow we'll we'll manage our way through this, because otherwise there's no chance of of getting out of this mess we're in. No, and we absolutely know that. 
and you're a believer, so we're going to believe, and you've given us presidents, but some of the really, really good presidents who even as time has gone by, they look better. I think when we're living it, it's very easy to find fault, right? They've suddenly become heroes. And, you know, when you think about the fact that Lincoln and it's it's portrayed in the miniseries in the summer of 64, it was told to him by all the Republican leaders that he'll never win that election in November unless he's willing to compromise on slavery and just argue that they'll go to the peace table with the South. The South is exhausted, too. Every hundreds of thousands have died. The war can't keep going on. And just promise that you'll do that and put emancipation off for a later time. He knew it might mean losing the election, but he said, I'd be damned in time and eternity if I went back on my word and I returned the black warriors to slavery. And again, that's what we need right now from our elected officials, that they know what's right, they know what's wrong. Is it worth just winning another couple of years in office versus taking a stand and knowing that you're doing something that history will regard as a good thing that you did? And, and history will look well on people who protect the right to vote. These kinds of times when we go closer to our ideals are what history considers as positive movements. And we go backwards sometimes. It's a relay race. But this is one of those times when we have to start moving forward again. Well, let's hope that um, from your mouth, as they say, to God's ear, because there is so much going on. Do you sometimes, after all the wonderful things that you've done, all the presidents that you've shared with us, the Pulitzer Prize, the great books, and these specials. Can you sometimes believe you grew up to be Doris Kearns Goodwin? <laughs> like, how all this happened to you, a baseball-loving kid who probably never dreamt that that was your future, or did you? Oh, there's no question I did not. No, I mean, all I knew really because of baseball was that I loved history because I could you know, recount the stories of the Brooklyn Dodger game that afternoon, play by play, inning by inning to my father, because he taught me how to keep score. And that's made history seem pretty magic if your father's spending so much time listening to you when he comes home from work during the day. And also, I think, because my mother had had rheumatic fever so that she led a pretty invalid existence in our house. And I wanted to always remember her when she might have been young or imagine her. So I would Mm. constantly ask her to tell me stories of the days when she was young, not realizing how peculiar that was until my own three sons never once have said to me, Mom, tell me a story about you when you were our no, age. I always but say I think... too much, they were saying too much. <laughs> Mom, I don't want to know that much about you. <laughs> but the question of wanting to know about the past somehow between baseball and my mother, I think led me into a love of history that then was strengthened by, I had great history teachers in high school, but then it became presidential history much against I would never have imagined it because of being chosen as a White House fellow. A random thing happens. I go to work for Lyndon Johnson, end up working for him in the White House, accompanying him to his ranch to help him on his memoirs, write a first book about President LBJ. And then all you, after a while, you're writing one on Kennedy, you're writing one on the Roosevelts, you're writing one on Lincoln. And, and then suddenly. suddenly you become a presidential historian, which I never could have imagined in the first place. But it's been a wonderful career to be catapulted back in time and live in these people's areas of time, understand what these leaders were like. Um, I wouldn't change it for anything. I feel very lucky to have had it. Now, and the improbable thing that you had actually written something very negative about Lyndon Johnson at that time. And and Johnson was so sure of himself that he was like, get rid of me. 
I'll, I'll right. change her in the <laughs> year. You'll see. Bring her down here for a year, and, and, and I'll, if I can't win her, oh, no one can. We'll fix her. She was an extraordinary person, Joan. I mean, I really, in so many ways, it was. I realize now more than I did when I was 24, 25, what an incredible experience it was to be able to spend so much time with him. If I'd known him at the height of his power, that might not have happened. But here it was. He was at the ranch. His, his powers was over in a certain way, and he wanted to talk. So I listened. I listened to a great storyteller, just as, as Lincoln was. I mean, I think the ability to tell a story is what you hope for an historian. It's what you hope for a miniseries like this. And Lincoln's understood. He told stories all the time. He said stories were the way for people to be persuaded better than facts and figures because stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I think that's why I think the journey of this miniseries takes you from the beginning all the way to the end of his life, not covering ground, but really choosing those episodes where he grew or where he learned or where he had to acknowledge things that had gone wrong. And so you, you really are following him on that journey every step, and you care about him. And by the time he becomes president, you, you want him to do well, because that'll mean the country will do well, because you understand they've become fused together. Absolutely. You do care about him. And when you see this, you get a, an idea of what it takes to really be a leader. What kind of success do you need to make this happen? And as important is how to restore trust, make the people feel that all this is possible. It's an extraordinary job. It's History Channel's three-night series, Abraham Lincoln, over President's Weekend, and executive producing it is Doris Kearns Goodwin. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I look forward oh, to talking you, to you. Thank you, Joan. I'm so glad you've had a chance to look at it. Oh, we're did. really it proud was, of it, so I hope it, people will feel the same be. way. No, it was Yay. extraordinary. And you know what? It made me feel hopeful. And I haven't always felt like that, you know, that things are going to happen. And we've just got to have trust. And we, the people, have to remember that it's about us, too. Exactly. It's, government's not a foreign body. Government is us. It's we the people. Absolutely. Thank you. All the best to you and your family. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joan. Take care. Anytime. I'll talk to you again, I hope. I look forward to it. I'm Joan okay, Hamburg, bye. and you're listening. Goodbye. You're listening to WABC. Stay tuned. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. With the mask-wearing requirements changing... People have been asking me, well, are you going to wear a mask? What about the kids? What's the story? Every day something different. It's true. With all the controversy right now, I will tell you, just predicated on what I'm reading, not newspaper editorials, but the science stuff, if I'm outside with a whole bunch of people or I'm inside with a whole bunch of people, and they're not necessarily my little pack, I still feel safer wearing a mask than not. However, if we're going to wear it, then we want real protection and comfort. I went to the theater the other day. I saw The Music Man, which still made me happy, one of the great old-fashioned musicals. And I didn't like wearing a 95 mask for two and a half hours, more almost. It was a long show. So I went back to an article I had clipped in the Times last week, and they did a story on Korean masks, high-quality masks called KF94. Did you guys see that? 
The article said that the KF-94 is a high-quality mask. It is made in South Korea, and allegedly it's more comfortable than other respirator masks. And the KF is for Korean filter. The 94 is 94% filtration. And they were developed for public use. They're available in adult and child sizes. And apparently, they work incredibly well. And there aren't a lot of counterfeits like there are with the other masks. So you can go to the website, take a look, and you can find them on Amazon. And you can look for something called KN Flax. And you can look for something called um, Happy Life slash Good Life, Happy Day, Happy Life Kids. It's all there, and you'll find it. And on Amazon, I found KN Flax 20 packs black for $28.88. And I thought that was pretty good. And for the kids, I found one, the same deal, $29.99. So, Yes, I'm going to wear a mask until I feel more comfortable and safe. We still know people who are getting this. And if I'm going to wear it now, I'm trying the new Korean KF-94. Okay? And right now, the clock is saying goodbye, farewell. We had a really good time. Thank you so much for sharing the Joan Hamburg Show. Join us every Sunday starting at 2. And remember... Stay tuned to WABC because we have great programming all day long. Enjoy the rest of Sunday. I'm Joan Hamper.